As many of you know, Unitarian Universalism is a non-creedal spiritual tradition, or what's called a free faith. This means it does not insist that everyone profess a certain set of beliefs. Instead, we come together to explore, wonder, consider, discover, share, and deepen. In that spirit of free inquiry, in considering one of the perennial spiritual questions today, what happens to humans after physical death, I will deliberately challenge the satirical portrait of UUs at their funerals as being all dressed up with no place to go. <laughs> because after years of wrestling with many aspects of religion and spirituality, I have come to believe firmly in the continuity of the human soul after death not through theological argument or philosophical conjecture, but through common experience-based stories. Many of these, like today's, coming from folks with no religious belief or conscious spiritual life, who experienced what witnessed or witnessed occurrences that point strongly toward some sort of afterlife. As I spoke of a few weeks ago in a different context, this notion means allowing for aspects of life that transcend the strictly rational and empirical, that is, placing the rational mind within a broader transrational sphere of awareness. Such awareness broke in suddenly on a man of science, Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell who while orbiting the Earth had what we might call a unitive mystical experience that completely reoriented his life toward the study of such wider consciousness. And he has what I think is a wise take on the subject. There are no unnatural or supernatural phenomena, he said, only very large gaps in our knowledge of what is natural. And most cosmologists now believe the known universe is about 5% normal matter, the stuff we can sense directly, with the rest made up of unseen dark matter and dark energy. So I suggest it serves our intellectual and spiritual expansion to stay open-minded about the nature of ultimate reality. So, up to now, we've heard two stories from the book Final Gifts, Understanding the Special Awareness Needs and Communications of the Dying by veteran hospice nurses Maggie Callanan and Patricia Kelly. A few years ago, after a lifelong friend's older brother, who I also knew, died suddenly, I emailed those and a third Final Gifts story to my bereaved pal. He didn't respond, and that was fine. I knew he and his family were shaken by the unexpected death and caught up with all the emotional and practical demands of responding to the situation. I also knew that although he and I had met as kids at our Lutheran uh, church in Minneapolis, as an adult he had never had any interest in spiritual matters. About 10 months pass, and during that time his elderly father's health is declining. I had known his dad, Joe, forever, and every few weeks, my friend and I talk about dealing with his decline. Then one day, I get a different kind of phone call from my friend, and I later ask if he could write down the essence of the experience he shared with me. He was happy to. These are his words. I went to see my father, and the hospice nurse was there. She told me that my dad was comfortable, but was seeing people on the other side. He may not have much time left. 
I asked what she meant by people on the other side, and she said he is calling out people's names, but she couldn't clearly understand who he was calling out to. I told her in a smart alecky tone that when you know someone who has been to the other side and, save, and saw people from their past and lived to tell you about it, you let me know. I was a non-believer of the other side. So I walked to the bed and looked at Dad, and with his eyes closed, he asked, how many people are here? I looked at him and said, there are only three of us here. He said, there are so many people here. How did, how did you all get here? I haven't seen you in such a long time. A huge smile came across his face, and he had not smiled for such a long time. It blew me away. He repeats, how did you get here? I'm freaking out because he was not talking to me. I started to cry, and I told the hospice nurse I was sorry for breaking down, and she said it was okay. I told you he was seeing people on the other side. I think there is something to the progression of death, and the hospice people have seen it many times before. I guess I had to see it for myself to come to grips with the fact that there really could be another side. Wow, what an experience. When I told my younger brother what happened, he said that he wishes he could have been there to witness it. Wow, what an experience. Of course, it's possible to argue, and many do, that the blissful visions experienced by dying people like Lynn and Emma in our reading and my friend's father, Joe, are just hallucinations produced as their brains shut down. But such visions don't only come to dying persons, but also to those who are very much alive and of sound mind. For instance, another acquaintance of mine, he's an airline pilot, so he is scientific, yet also spiritual, was awakened in the middle of the night by his father standing at the foot of his bed. At that moment, his phone rang, and it was his sister, a thousand miles away, who said she was looking at their father standing at the foot of her bed. The apparition faded. They finally fell back to sleep. And in the morning, neither was surprised to learn that their elderly dad had died at exactly the time he appeared to them. We might repeat, wow, what an experience. And I want to add here that all these stories support universalist theology, the claim that despite even severe earthly mistakes, all souls are ultimately reconciled with the divine. Everyone reaches the light. Because no report I have ever encountered tells of a person's spirit warning their loved ones about eternal hell and damnation, nor saying they'd better take Jesus as their Lord and Savior or else suffer that fate. Yet this ultimate assurance and the trust that one's spiritual essence continues after physical death is not to suggest we should mourn our lost loved ones any less. Grieving is a crucial process that helps the human psyche adjust to the sting of death. But is it possible that allowing for this continuance can ease that sting just a bit and also allow us to view our own mortality with less trepidation? One of history's great mystical poets, Rumi, responds with a resounding yes. When you see my procession, don't cry, gone, gone. 
For me, it is a time of meeting and reunion. As you lower me into the grave, don't say, so long. The grave is a veil before the gathering of paradise. When you see that lowering down, consider arising. What harm is there in the setting of a sun or moon? What seems a setting to you is a dawning. With this in mind, I'd like to offer another first-hand account, this from a member of a different UU congregation I served. I got permission to share what she wrote to me, but have witnessed, or have withheld, rather, a few details for privacy. Here are her words, slightly abridged. And if I make it through this without choking up, it'll be, it'll be good. <laughs> and if I do choke up, that's okay too. When I was about 25, one of my best friends was murdered. He was the nat she was the naturalist at a national park in California whose attacker had previously killed three other women. She fought so hard that she had his DNA under his fingernails so he could be identified, which solved the other murders. Her loss was very shocking and horrific for me, as it was for everyone who loved her. I was in a lot of pain, and it was particularly terrible to think of what she went through in the moments before her death. I believe it was a week or so after her death that I was asleep one night and woke up to feel that I'd had a visitation. She had put her hand on my shoulder and I was just so thankful to have contact with this person I thought I'd lost forever and wanted to share my sympathies with her for what she'd been through. I didn't hear any words from her, but she communicated that she was in a hurry. She was going back and forth from her mother who was on the coast and her fiance who was up in the Sierra. I was in Davis and she saw how much pain I was in so she wanted to come by quickly to comfort me. She wasn't in pain and had no personal upset for what she had gone through. She was desperate to get to her fiance who was tearing his heart out. But aside from trying to ease the suffering of those of us who loved her, she wasn't suffering herself. She could see through us the rage and the trauma, but she wasn't feeling any of it. She was calm and loving and whole. I hadn't believed in angels before this or had any specific idea of what happened to a person's soul after death or even if they had one. This visit from her was very calming for me. It was still torturous to think of what she'd gone through and so saddening that she didn't get to live the full life that she deserved. But I now felt that I knew she at least wasn't reliving the pain. She wasn't hurting. Her soul wasn't wounded and whimpering, sad to have lost its days on earth. Her soul was full of strength and peace and love, and also of compassion for those she left behind. She left, and that's when I woke up, and the feeling of her hand having just been on my shoulder was still there. It is strange to write this story down, but maybe it will help somebody else find comfort 
if they are grieving someone who has died in a physically painful way. I invite us just to take this in for a moment. Again, wow, what an experience. And if you are grieving a loss, know that the peaceful, loving soul this person reported encountering is also the state of your loved one, too. One last point on this subject today, which is that our beliefs, our attitudes toward death, hugely impact our attitudes toward life and the world. The 1992 book, The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, which both explains and expands upon the ancient Tibetan Book of the Dead, was written by Tibetan Buddhist Lama Songyo Rinpoche, who was raised in Tibet and educated in his tradition by elder Buddhist masters. He then received a Western-style education in India and England, and since the 1970s primarily lived and taught in the West until his death in 2019. And Songyo Rinpoche relates how when he first came from Tibet and India to the West, quote, I was shocked by the contrast between the attitudes to death I had been brought up with and those I now found. I learned that people today are taught to deny death and that it means nothing but annihilation and loss. That means that most of the world lives in either denial of death or in terror of it. He goes on to suggest that in contrast to this is if through holding a vision of some sort of life to come that one's earthly life is infused with sacred meaning. And he goes further with the implications. In his words, I have come to realize that the disastrous effects of the denial of death go far beyond the individual. They affect the whole planet. Believing fundamentally that this life is the only one, modern people have developed no long-term vision. So there is nothing to restrain them from plundering the planet for their own immediate ends and from living in a selfish way that could prove fatal for the future. Now, one's spiritual beliefs are hardly the only factor in our global situation. But if we need anything in this world right now, do we not need a long-term vision? So the prospect of a spiritual continuity after death can not only lighten our griefs and ease our apprehensions, it can also inform our lives. That's why a Zen saying is, die before you die. That is, consciously make a level of peace with your own mortality, even try to befriend it in order to live deeply in this life. Poet Mary Oliver speaks to this in her poem, When Death Comes, which slightly abridged ends this way. When it's over, I want to say all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. The present holds essential matters. Life is precious. Justice 
counts. Yet for all the importance of such earthly concerns, it's also vital that we grasp the eternal aspect of our beings, as found in the stories we've heard today and countless others like them. In closing, here's the third final gifts story that I sent to my friend after his brother died unexpectedly. Peggy, a young woman dying of lymphoma that had advanced to the point where she was very weak, slept most of the time, and was sometimes slightly confused. But when our visitor, visiting colleague arrived for a routine visit, Peggy called out in a strong, clear voice. Come on up, I'm upstairs, she said. She looked bright, radiant, and was unusually animated. Let me tell you what happened to me, Peggy said. I was lying here in bed yesterday, sort of drifting in and out of sleep, and I'm remembering back to a happy time from my childhood. My brother and I were taken in by my aunt during a time that my parents were having financial difficulty. I really loved my aunt. She was so loving to both of us, and it was just a very happy time for me. I still love her a lot. Well, I woke up with a start when I felt a warm, caring hand on my shoulder. I looked behind me, and there was my aunt smiling at me as she touched me. It made me feel so good and safe. Where is your aunt? The nurse asked. She lives in Massachusetts, Peggy said. I haven't seen her in a long time because she's sick. But I felt her with me off and on all day. It made me feel so good. Then last night, my uncle called to say she died yesterday. At the same time, I was first aware of her being with me. Then today I woke up and she was touching me again. What a nice experience, the nurse said. I can see how good it's made you feel. What do you think it means? That she'll be there for me when I die, Peggy replied with a luminous smile, and that we will be together again. Blessed be, and amen.